And welcome to a brand new edition of the Bruin Bible. This is your host, Will Decker, for the LA Football Network, brought to you by the good people of Bet Online, brought to you by the good people of Underdog Fantasy. Make sure to use that promo code UCLALAFB. We will match up any uh, donation, any deposit up to $500. I call it donation for my part because I lose a lot of money when I'm gambling. So essentially, it is a donation. From me, but hey, it could be a deposit for you where you can double that up to $500. So use that promo code UCLALAFB. I got the madman in the house as always. A lot of fun stuff on the horizon. We're going to be out in Las Vegas next week uh, covering the Super Bowl. I mean, this lined up so perfectly. Las Vegas is a close spot for us here in LA. My Niners are playing the Super Bowl, which I did not expect, but just grateful to be involved in any capacity when it comes to that. Madman, how are we doing on this Wednesday evening with the Super Bowl looming next week and a lot of great UCLA topics to talk about? The thriller, it's it's great to be alive and doing this with you as always, always grateful. I'm sure you're thrilled and recovering from the dramatic Niners victory uh, in the NFC Championship game. And we had an incredible USC-UCLA basketball game over the weekend. We're gearing up here for... Radio Road next week, so can't be more delighted. A lot of entertaining things going on in terms of chatter and news with the football team. Basketball team seems to have turned a corner here, shockingly enough, after the last few games. And so you just never know, and you're always just so excited. But I'm feeling really good about the Bruins here moving forward. Yeah, on both the basketball court and the football field, we're going to be talking about the secondary. We're going to preview that going to spring. A lot of good transfers coming in for UCLA on the secondary. A lot of good returning talent in the secondary as a whole as well. But let's talk about it, man. This happened on Saturday. UCLA got a 65-50 win at the Galen Center against USC. A lot of positives coming out of this game. One, they've won three or four games since the Utah debacle. And the Arizona loss, yes, I can defend it a little bit. I mean, it's to the best team within the Pac-12. And we should have won that game ultimately. Like I said in the last time we talked hoops, Madman. I just feel like a lot of guys have stepped into their roles at a heightened level since that Utah game, taking accountability, making things happen. We only had three players scoring double digits in this game, but I just want to remark on how incredible of a turnaround it has been for Lazar Stefanovic, Dylan Andrews, and you know even Adam Bona. I, you know, if you told me about two weeks ago how UCLA would fare if Sebastian Mack, who still is their leading scorer, on you know on the season up to this point how they would fare if he went one for six from the field with four points i'd say they didn't have a shot in hell at winning a ball game they came away with a double digit resounding victory with the team kind of coming together talk to me about this performance because i came away motivated and if we beat these oregon schools this weekend like we were talking about you know pre this show we got a chance to go 500 within the pack if we beat oregon state and then on sunday if we beat the oregon ducks we could be above 500 in Pac-12 play, man. No doubt, Will. I mean, it's really, uh, I think, a galvanizing victory. And you saw this team go back to their roots 
of playing terrific defense, incredible hustle, grit, tenacity. I'll tell you, Will, the game was almost a reverse of what the Mick Cronin era has been for so long at UCLA, where obviously there's been a tremendous amount of success, but the one knock in the Cronin era has been UCLA blowing big leads, in, and particularly in the second half. And that has been the case the last couple of years with USC, primarily at the Galen Center, where they've been up and they haven't been able to close the door. Big games, they're up. They just can't seem to close the door. And we were looking like we were headed for a loss early in that game. USC jumped out to a 20-13 to 13 lead. Looked like UCLA was really struggling offensively. Boogie Ellis was getting going for USC. Kobe Johnson was getting going. The individual play of USC was starting to play out in their favor. And you were just wondering how this team was going to respond. And then they went ahead on this 22-4 to four run, totally seized the game, and never let up in route to a 65-50 victory. And Will, SC never got inside of 10 points in the second half. And so it was a wire-to-wire, very impressive finish. You said it best. It started with Dylan Andrews, his 20 points, his ability to hit outside shots, both from three as well as from the mid-range, really opened things up for UCLA and gave them some sense of offensive identity. And then when you couple that with Lazar Stefanovic, hitting some very timely buckets, particularly in the second half. He got fouled on a three-pointer as UCLA was trying to close that game, hit all three, hit a big three in the second half to keep some distance with SC when they were starting to gain some momentum. And it just goes to show you when these two guys on the perimeter can actually hit shots and be credible threats, the game opens up enough where the likes of a Sebastian Mack can get to the lane, can make some things happen. Even though that wasn't the case in this game, those opportunities will exist moving forward. Burke, when he comes back and is healthy, he'll have some lanes. John Vide will have some lanes. He actually showed some flashes in that game as well. But, Will, I have to sort of lean on a Dambona here. And the numbers don't do him justice. He got the double-double. But you're talking about a guy who single-handedly disrupted the whole USC front line. He was going up against Joshua Morgan, Vincent Uochuku and Kijani Wright, three 6'10-plus players for USC, and was basically out-dueling two or three of them at the same time at points in this game for rebounds, for hustle plays, totally disrupted everything that USC wanted to do. And so, again, it was 65 points. It wasn't a work of art offensively, but when you have an identity and you know who you are, Andrews and Stefanovic being able to hit shots, Andrews being able to play make, Mack being able to cut, Bona being a rim runner and have a creator in the paint. And then Burke and Vide kind of getting into the paint and being slashers. Now you have some tools in the toolbox to get in there and make some things happen. And I thought Brandon Williams did a phenomenal job as well in some spot minutes. So really encouraging here moving forward, Will. And like we talked about, UCLA right now is sitting at four and five in this conference. The number one team in the Pac-12 has three losses in the conference. UCLA is two out. Uh, in the loss column for first place in the Pac-12. Everybody seems to be beating up everybody else. If UCLA can put two good games together here at home, a very winnable game at home against Oregon State, and then kind of a pick em game against Oregon, if they can get out of this weekend, Will, 11-11 and 11 and 6-5 and five in Pac-12 play, you're potentially looking at a scenario where they could be a game and a half or even a game out of first place in the Pac-12 heading into 
February and really setting up this incredible March run here where I think they could be peaking at the right time in the Pac-12 tournament. Yeah, there's so much encouragement from what you just said, too, compared to where we were at. We went to the first home game of the season, or one of the first ones, and we were we saw the win streak snapped at Pauley Pavilion to where it's at now. So there's a lot of great things going on. Bona, you mentioned, man, and I have a soft spot for guys that play incredibly hard, do the little things, get to the rack, draw fouls. Bona was the most aggressive and hardest-working player on the floor. And I think if you have people of Bona's ilk in that, you know, program, if you will, only good things are going to happen. You know, we differ a lot. And I know this is the Bruin Bible on Russell Westbrook, you know, and, and your opinion on him and my opinion on him. But what I can never deny is this guy plays his ass off every single night with the whistles until the whistles blow effectively. So our boy Bona came in there, double, double, 10 points, 10 rebounds, three offensive boards, two block shots. The energy plays, the hustle plays he made was the, you know, the difference in a game like this. It's just so satisfying to beat this USC team that was so hyped coming into this year, Mad Man. Bronny James is on campus. Isaiah Collier, you know, was like a top three national recruit. A lot of people had USC maybe winning the Pac-12 against from the likes of an Arizona or what you will. So that was very encouraging. The other two guys we talked about, Dylan Andrews having a season high of 20 plus points was massive. You know, I think he is a guy where if he can get his shots and his moments, we can see a lot more of these 15 to 20 point nights if he's more consistent with it. We're starting to see him develop some of that. What's really impressed me, and we talked about this last time to an extent, has been his playmaking. He's led the team in assists, a role that didn't look that natural to him, you know, early in the season. Five assists on average over the last four games, leading the team in that category. Crazy enough, Stefanovic is a guy that I could not be – it's a more night and day type of situation for how he's playing right now. Madman, since that Utah debacle, he's 10 of 20 from three-point range. That's a 50% clip he is shooting the rock at from downtown. And by the way, he led UCLA in rebounds in three of the last four contests. So he's doing more than what a traditional shooter would do. He's crashing the boards. He's helping out Bona, getting plays done. You had that with Will McClendon coming off the bench, knocking down a couple threes and different guys just making plays. It's It seems like they've got the recipe for success moving forward. Do you agree with that, Matt? Oh, I totally agree, Will. And I think they're starting to figure out their roles. Andrews is starting to realize that he's going to be the primary ball handler on this team. So if a shot isn't there on a particular possession, that he's become much more of a willing passer because he knows he's the orchestrator. He's the guy who, whose usage rate is going to be the highest. His opportunity to create a mid-range shot on one or two dribbles and get some separation is always going to be there. I think early in the season, he was pressing a little bit, looking for his first and then trying to set up the team. Now he's realizing, look, let me get my guys going because I'm always going to get the opportunity to get some shots up and get some points just by virtue of me controlling the ball so much. And so he's just looking more relaxed and looking more poised and decisive in his decision-making. The other guy, Will, you said it best, Stefanovic. I think he's there's a light bulb that's gone off in his game in terms of simplification. And I think where Stefanovic got in trouble earlier in the season was he was over dribbling. And when he wasn't kind of at the three-point line, he'd do a pump fake, he'd dribble in, and then he'd get a little bit lost in the mid-range game. You could see he didn't really want to shoot the mid-range game, and he's not really like a post guy. And so there was a, some excessive dribbling 
And what that led is some poor footwork and some poor decision-making about when to shoot and when not to, get, getting stuck in corners, taking low-percentage shots. And you could, you could see that it was affecting his confidence and it was affecting what he wanted to do offensively, affecting kind of the legs, affecting the arc. So many of his balls early in the year, Will, were just so off. I mean, he was either super long, didn't hit the rim, he was short. I mean, everyone was like, what is really going on here? The transition that I've seen with Stefanovic the last couple of games is it's a one dribble and go, where he's either shooting the three very decisively or he's pump faking and taking a dribble and sidestepping to take the three or pump faking and dribbling and stepping into a closer shot. But it's really one dribble and he's either shooting it or he's going to pass it back out. And I think that simplification has really helped his game to say, I'm a one dribble guy before I make my decision. And it's really created more smooth opportunities. And I think the third piece, Will, on the Bona, he started realizing his vast importance to this team. And he is no longer making kind of the boneheaded fouls from 50, 60 feet away. You know, earlier in the season, Bona, he was always good for one or two of these cheap fouls reaching for no reason, fouling a guy that had no business really being an offensive threat. And he's learned to sort of dial back on that and really understand that maximizing his aggressiveness in those key moments is pivotal because he's so important to this team. So I think each of these guys has sort of gone through their own evolution. And the next guy that I think we're going to be really excited to see is Burke because I think him stepping back, Will, and watching this game sort of unfold I think is really going to be key where he can then realize where he wants to be able to pick his spots. And in turn, I think the fifth piece of the puzzle in Sebastian Mack, who's been the primary piece for so long, I think is now understanding, hey, these guys are coming along with me. I don't have to do everything. I don't have to just go and throw my body in the lane. I can also pick my spots a little bit. So the perfect storm, it's all coming together here at the right time, Will. And yet again, we look at this Pac-12 only one team ranked in the top 25. And guess what? Arizona is now outside of the top 10. They have three conference losses. They've looked very human at times. And so there is a real opportunity for this UCLA team to say, hey, even if we get Arizona and Vegas in a neutral site, we were up 19 on them in their building. So why can't we feel like we can play them and beat them in a neutral site situation? So a lot to be excited about these next 40, 42 days. And I'm going to put you on the spot here. All these guys are important to the team's success. But with the current iterations we've seen of them, which player among those five we just mentioned, whether it's Bona, Burke, uh, you know, Sebastian Mack, Dylan Andrews, Stefanovic, is the most important if UCLA is going to reach that ceiling of maybe qualifying for an NCAA tournament bid by winning the conference tournament? Will, it's a great question. And I think there's an argument to be made for multiple guys. But I think the way the college game is played, particularly what you need to make a deep run in the postseason and how you sort of complement that with a tremendous defensive effort with Cronin's system, it's Andrews for me. It's just the the usage rate there is so high that Andrews is the most important guy because he holds he's the Tiger Campbell now. And so so goes Andrews. So goes this team. We've talked about it. Where is the point guard? When will the point guard emerge? Now he's emerging as the point guard. And now everyone is sort of slotting into their respective roles. Now there's going to be nights where Sebastian Mack is capable of getting 25 points. Bona is capable of going 15 and 14 on a particular night. So there's some very high ceilings 
with some of these other guys. But the way Andrew sort of sets the table and allows those guys to be successful in their roles is going to be very critical. So to me, so goes Dylan Andrews, so goes UCLA in 2024. Yeah, no, I love the pick. It kind of allows every one of those players to be themselves, you know, at their best ability. So I love the Dylan Andrews pick on that. Secondary, man, a lot of good stuff coming out of the secondary last year. For the first time, we can really remember as people that have covered this podcast, I was the famous guy saying, this is the year. This is going to be the best second to none. Secondary to none. That was the thriller line. (laughs) We need the t-shirts still printed out, man. We need to get the t-shirts of secondary to none out there to the public. But, you know, we actually made a lot of progress this year. And I know Lynn has left and some of these dudes, Ramsey and Churchwell, are headed off to greener pastures. But let's not, you know, diminish what Cody Whitfield did as the secondaries coach. He won the final Pac-12 Secondaries Coach of the Year award. You got your two main corners coming back in Davies and Kirkwood, who were sensational. A lot of good transfers coming into who were getting out there immediately. Talk to me about what you saw in the improvement of the secondary last year and how you think they could ultimately fare as we head into 2024 territory. Well, I saw a tremendous evolution and I think there were so many other larger storylines last year that this one got lost in the shuffle. When you talk about the Garbers injury health or obviously chip on the hot seat or why isn't Sturdivant getting the ball more or, you know, on and on we go. The the lack of maybe step function improvement with the offensive line or just how great Latu and the Murphy twins are lost in all that shuffle was, I think, the secondary in 2023 for UCLA was equivalent to the offensive line in 2022 for UCLA in terms of the growth, in terms of the, the, the overall improvement from game one to game 13. And where I saw the improvement, Will, is it was very rare to see these guys truly get beat deep on a lot of plays over the course of the final three, four games of the season. The way they played against USC the way they competed against Boise State, even though the Cal game was such a debacle, the secondary was competing. It was more of a case of the offense just sort of losing attrition. Arizona State, similar story. I think what was so impressive to me is how much more fundamentally sound this unit got from start of the season to the end. You were not seeing the boneheaded pass interference penalties. You were not seeing the coverage busts and giving things up easy. You were seeing guys that were fundamentally sound in the right position, going hip to hip, elbow to elbow with the wide receivers, not really giving up a ton of separation. And then where I saw tremendous improvement, Will, was in the ball skills. I mean, we saw it with Davies at the end of the 22 season in the Sun Bowl and in the bowl game, and we saw flashes. And then Kirkwood having that huge interception against SC. And now you bring that together, Will, with the likes of an Addison, the transfer from Oregon, and some of these other guys. And I think this is going to be a tremendous position of strength. And not only that, Will, they are going to be playing a little bit more relaxed, in my opinion, in 2024, because the margin for error in 23 was so slim, given some of the offensive deficiencies, they had to play an even more perfect game in a lot of ways, particularly with how good that front seven was and being left in kind of more island one-on-one situations. Now, with everybody coming back on offense, I think UCLA's offense in 24 is going to look a lot more like the offense in 22. And so there's going to be a little bit more margin for error, coupled with the improvement, coupled with the great ball skills and the fundamentally sound play. 
And this is going to be a position of strength for UCLA in 24. Yeah, I like a lot of the guys coming back, too. I mean, Kirkwood, we've talked about him for years as a guy that's been on the bubble of, you know, really breaking out and being an impact player for UCLA. You know, that interception in the USC game, doing that in the victory bell game, usually the biggest game UCLA has in the schedule, that changes the confidence of a player. This guy was a highly coveted four-star recruit. You saw how he finished the season. You know, I thought he did very well in the bowl game against Boise State. The PFF grades reflect that as well. So if Kirkwood can build on that confidence that we know he has with the talent, I think it's just going to be a home run with what he's able to do down the line. Davies, I mean, this guy led the team in interceptions in 2022. You know, didn't really get his targeted this much. I think defense or offenses were more aware of what Davies brought to the table in terms of a ball hawk, former top 100 recruit. And then you got these guys coming in. You know, Alex Johnson, a guy that's tough to replace. You know, Kamari Ramsey, very tough to replace. Churchwell. They went in the portal and they got some guys, starting with K.J. Wallace, the nickelback out of Notre Dame and Georgia Tech. You know, this guy has been awesome. 19 career starts, you know, back in the day for Notre Dame and Georgia Tech. He had seven pass breakups in the nickel last year. That's one of the highest among that, you know, position stat. You couple that with a guy like Brian Addison, who's appeared in 30-plus games as a safety, and Ramon Henderson, who's appeared in 36 for Notre Dame. You know, maybe they're not the same players as those guys were but I thought they did a very good job on building upon those previous players again which transfer are you most excited about of those three guys well I I'm really excited about KJ Wallace and I think we know what we're getting from Addison with the experience I think him coming in and really sort of helping solidify things with the likes of a Churchill and a Humphreys not you know being on this roster anymore I really love the stability that Addison is going to bring but I love the chops of KJ Wallace and the big game experience. Will, you gave the stats that were absolutely spot on as always. What I love is the big game experience. I mean, this guy went up against Ole Miss. This guy went up against Georgia and Clemson and the likes of the best teams in the country and really played some of his best ball against some of the best teams in America in the SEC. And so him bringing that moxie he, he's one of those just super competitive guys that loves to get in there, compete, really mix it up. He's not afraid of any individual matchup. He's going to provide a swagger and a toughness in that secondary. Very excited about K.J. Wallace. He's lightning quick. He's got great ball skills, really good hand-eye coordination, really nice reflexes. I just love everything about K.J. Wallace. Perfect size for that position as well. And I think the ultimate fortification given the loss of Ramsey and Humphrey. So KJ Wallace will is my guy that I see really stepping in there and having a big impact. Yeah. And among the starters, we always talk about this as the UCLA curse starters are always good, but once we have to get into the depth chart a little bit, it really is tough to kind of replace some of that starter level production, you know, giving me a, a preseason grade pre spring grade a to F on what you think the secondary is. Well, I think it's a B. I think it's pretty solid. I, I'm cautiously optimistic here. I think you have all of the tools. I think you have size. I think you have competitiveness. I think you have ball skills. I think you have bump and run guys. I think you've got guys that are really good in bigger, more zone concepts. I think you have versatility. I think you've got some thumpers that are going to kind of get into the box and help uh, the likes of a John John Vons, for instance, and be kind of weak side to John John Vons in certain cases. So I really like what I'm seeing here. 
I think the big question for me of them going from B to A is who is going to step up and be that unanimous alpha? Who's the guy that the torch it really felt like was passed from Blaylock to Kamari Ramsey? And now who is who's going to take that torch of being the quarterback of the secondary, really being able to read offensive formations, put guys in the right places. And really, we talked about Dylan Andrews, Will, earlier, ironically enough. Who's going to be the Dylan Andrews of the secondary? And I think that's what I'm really looking for in the spring. And if that emerges, whether that's a traditional or a non-traditional leader, someone who leads by example or leads on the field by directing traffic, that's the big jump that I see of this unit going all the way to an A. And then we are going to print the shirts and we're going to paint the faces secondary to none. (laughs) We got to do it, man. We got to do it. Um, I agree. I think B is a, you know, a reasonable expectation from this group. They don't like it. I'm not saying it's like an LSU secondary, but I think they're very solid and can hold their own. And by the way, if Kirkwood continues that development, you know, like we talked about, this guy could be a top three to four pick in the draft if he's able to build upon what he's able to do, given that talent level, given that skill set and that size and what he could potentially put out on the field. So a lot of positives there. Last thing before we go. Chip Kelly was linked to the Seattle job with Dan Quinn. That went to Mike McDonald, defensive coordinator of the Ravens. Uh, I think it's a really good hire for the Seahawks. Another, you know, rumors kind of floating out there that Antonio Pierce, former friend of the Pac-12, unless if you went to Arizona State, he's getting a lot of the blame for ruining the program out there, uh, is now the Raiders head coach. And he's looking for that offensive coordinator to mold the mind of an Aiden O'Connell or a new quarterback going in there. Chip Kelly's name has been floated into this. Um, how much of this is smoke? How much of this would you say is realistic? You know, we came into this with an open mind to begin with. I think a lot of people are saying, you know, why do you guys think Chip's leaving? We didn't think he was leaving. We just had to put it out there as a possibility that he might. And these were the coaching examples that we thought would be good candidates because even if it's not this offseason, there's always a chance next offseason when his contract's up that Chip is leaving officially. So long story short, give me a percentage, zero to 100, on what this report may be of Chip Sniffing out the job of the OC for the Raiders. Well, I'll probably put it at around 15%. It's a little bit lower than the Seahawks type of situation because that felt more, hey, Dan Quinn, with Chip. It, there, there were some more players there where it kind of made sense. Can you think of two more different entities, Will, than Chip <laughs> Kelly and the Las Vegas Raiders. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable when you talk about Jekyll and Hyde and persona and the whole deal. But I think, again, when you take a step back, Chip is a very intelligent person. Whether you you love him, you hate him, you think he's a great coach, you think he's a terrible coach, whatever the case may be, I think it's undeniable his intellect. And, you know, his intellect has been something that's never been questioned. What's been questioned has been his ability to relate to people, his ability to recruit and fundraise and connect uh, at a a more interpersonal level. And I think the intellectual in Chip is assessing this situation and saying, hey, I'm really enjoying being the head coach of UCLA, regardless of, of what people may think. But I have to acknowledge the fact that after the 2024 season, UCLA's buyout for me goes to zero. And so there's tremendous financial flexibility now for the first time that UCLA has in this Chip Kelly era where they now hold the power of what they want to do. We talk about in the NBA all the time, Will, is it a team option or is it a player option? And up until this point, it's always kind of been a player option for Chip. 
But at the end of 2024, it's going to be a team option for UCLA. And so I think the intellectual in Chip is saying, hey, I got to assess my options and, and look at this a little bit more pragmatically of saying, if I do want to have a longer run as a coach, do I want to look at some offensive coordinator positions? And again, I think, will this may be a hot take or not. I think it's, it's an easier job to coach in the NFL than it is to coach college. Not necessarily in terms of the wins and losses and how easy or difficult it is to get wins, but in terms of the balance, right? At the end of the day, if you're just coaching in the NFL, an offseason is truly an offseason. There's no such thing as an offseason now with the transfer portal, with NIL, with just the unlimited free agency in college football. This is a 24-7, 365 job now. But if you're an offensive coordinator in the NFL, that's not a 24-7, 365 job. You get a couple of months off. You don't have to worry about personnel issues. You don't have to worry about the bigger picture. You can just organize plays, run a playbook, conceive of ideas, really be the tactician that you want to be, all the things that Chip loves. So it's those elements, again, that I think make it appealing. I know we heard uh, some chatter in the Senior Bowl from a, a number of different pockets that he's interested in throwing some feelers out. And again, it kind of makes some sense. Seattle, Las Vegas, it's all sort of close by to where he is right now and an opportunity to kind of feel out whether he wants to be an OC. Now, having said all of that, I can't possibly see Antonio Pierce and Chip Kelly kind of sharing a coaching staff. I just can't see it, Will. I can't see Will in like a, in a Chip in a silver and black visor or something like that in Apollo. It's hard for me to envision that. So that's why I've got it at 15%. But I think that's sort of what he's weighing right now. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it'd be like, it'd be like him in Vegas would be like Robert De Niro and Casino just out there, just full gold chains on the suits, you know, in Vegas. It doesn't, doesn't really feel like a cultural fit. Seattle always felt more of a hit just because he'd been in the Pacific Northwest with Oregon, really likes it up yep. there. But you made a really good point. I think the college football job is a lot more stressful today than it was 10 years ago. And that even includes the recruiting back at those times. Chip just turned 60 this year. He's probably evaluating all of his options saying, do I still want to coach? Of course I do. Do I want to lessen my load as a coach? Absolutely as well. So maybe the offensive coordinator job, that's what he's really looking towards. And he's getting closer and closer to that expiration date when it comes to coaching in uh, you know, college football. And the yeah. other thing, Will, is when you're 60 and you're Chip, and look, he's been a big-time coach now for 15 years. Look, his yeah. first year at Oregon was 09. Here we are in 2024. He's either been the coach of Oregon or Eagles or Niners or UCLA. The guy's made four, five, six million dollars every year for the last 15 years. So I don't know if that next six million is really something that's kind of a yeah. motivator at this point. You know, I mean, it's different if it's your first six million versus two million. But after 15 years of making four, five, six million a year at 60 years old, I don't think the difference between two, two and a half million as a coordinator versus six million as the UCLA coach is that much of a difference for someone like Chip Kelly. So I think he can kind of take a step back to your point, Will. I'm 60. What do I really want to do? And how do I want to spend my time? And I think there's elements of UCLA he loves. You know he loves kind of the books and ball ethos. He loves kind of picking the more cerebral players. But if there's maybe an opportunity in the right situation where he doesn't have to move very far, he still gets really good weather, some nice golfing, and gets an opportunity to work five, six months out of the year instead of 12 months out of the year and just do the things that he loves, 
look, I mean, who wouldn't want to at least consider that? And so that's why I think it's a non-zero probability. Uh, it would be nice if it was more of a cultural fit, but hey, that's part of the fun too. Who knows? I mean, chipping with the Raiders would be something else. Can you imagine if the Raiders went and drafted Caleb Williams for instance, traded up in the draft, and then Chip is coaching Caleb next year? I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities here next year. <laughs> Everything's on the table if Chip goes to Las Vegas at that point, man. And, uh, yeah, you know, I agree with everything you just said, man. The people, the contingent of the fan base, it's like, why would he leave, you know, $6 million on the table? It's like, man, he's made his money. Like, if he's smart with his money, like we think he's been, because he's a very intelligent human being, money shouldn't be an issue for him at this point in life at 60 years old and coaching multiple NFL teams in Oregon. I think, you know, they're probably paying him pretty well up there with that Nike money with Phil Knight back in the day. Guys, really fun Bruin Bible. Always great to have the madman in the fold. We're going to have two of our biggest interviews coming up next week. So you guys want to stay tuned. It's been a little bit of, you know, us kind of, you know, decompressing since the season ended. We're doing basketball. So make sure to tune in for that. But we got two massive interviews coming your guys' way next week. Any closing thoughts uh, before we head out to Vegas together for the freaking Super Bowl next week, Matt? Man? Well, it's going to be really fun, Will. I know we're going to do one show in our usual format here at the beginning of next week, but then we're going to have a fun Bruin Bible from Vegas. Can't wait, Will, to do this with you in person. Going to be a ton of fun. And and we got to end it on a movie reference, Will, right? I mean, oh, you know, you brought it up with, with Casino and, and Robert De Niro, and I still remember, remember when it was, Joe Pesci and his buddy in Casino where they were kind of looking for the cops right outside his like gold shop that he had created. You know, they're smoking the cigarettes and they're like, who's this guy? Who's this guy? Who's this guy? You know, I can. Oh, can you imagine Chip Kelly and his visor with his cigarette with Antonio Pierce sort of assessing the talent and going, who the hell is this guy? Who the hell is this guy? Who's this guy? You know, so, uh, hey, stranger things have happened. Well, who knows? Maybe, I mean, are we going to break possibly a chip to Vegas story while being in Vegas? I mean, wow. hey, you know, I mean, who knows what can happen, but welcome to the wild world of college football offseason. It's going to be a lot of fun, man. And, you know, we wanted to print the secondary to none shirts. Let's print the chip shirts and the visor. <laughs> We're probably going to get a cease and desist on that one, but yeah. I would love to do it anyways. Well, much love, guys. Bruin Bible, we are officially out. We may have another episode this week. If not this week, guys, we got two massive interviews coming next week, so stay tuned. Everything LAFB coming your guys' way. We'll talk to you soon.